Hello, we're Equinor. As a global energy leader, we're working hard to reduce methane emissions and our carbon footprint. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, November 27th. In today's news, Americans are dying young at alarming rates, and a major new study helps explain the reasons. Pay for NRA executives surges as the group slashes spending on the programs that actually benefit members. And you really should steer clear of romaine lettuce if it's on the table at Thanksgiving. But first, the big idea. President Trump knew. President Trump knew about the whistleblower's complaint before he reluctantly unfroze the military aid to Ukraine. The New York Times first reported last night that lawyers from the White House Counsel's Office told Trump in late August about the whistleblower complaint, explaining that they were trying to determine whether they were legally required to provide it to Congress or if they could cover it up. This sheds light on why Trump finally released the $400 million in security assistance to Ukraine, but also why he was so vigorous in his denial that there was no quid pro quo when Gordon Sundland, the donor-turned-ambassador to the EU, confronted him around the same time. Trump used that phrase, no quid pro quo, before it had entered the public lexicon in the Ukraine affair, but it was a concern that his lawyers were mentioning in conversations with him, reportedly. This also helps shed light on why White House lawyers tried so aggressively to conceal the whistleblower complaint from Congress and the committees that have oversight of the intelligence community. In late August, the inspector general of the intelligence community, Trump appointee Michael Atkinson, concluded that the administration was required to send it to Congress. But the White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, and his deputy, John Eisenberg, disagreed. They decided that the administration could withhold from Congress the accusations if they claimed executive privilege. The lawyers told Trump during their meeting where they alerted him to the complaint before the aid was released that they planned to ask the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel to determine whether they were required to disclose the complaint. They surely knew the answer would be no. The office is run by a Trump loyalist who has given them air cover time and time again. Sure enough, a week later, the OLC issued an opinion saying Trump didn't need to turn anything over. But the intelligence community IG felt he had a duty to follow the law. So it got out. The other big news that broke last night is that two staffers at the Office of Management and Budget resigned after they expressed concerns about the legality of holding up the aid for Ukraine. Mark Sandy, the only OMB official to testify as part of the impeachment inquiry, would not name the employees in question. He said one worked in the OMB legal division and described that person as having a, quote, dissenting opinion about how the security assistance could be held up in light of the Impoundment Control Act. Now, the Impoundment Control Act, ironically, was passed in 1974 after Richard Nixon abused the appropriations process for political purposes during the Watergate period. The law limits the ability of the executive branch to change spending decisions that were made by Congress. Sandy's testimony is the first public confirmation that the dispute at the OMB over the handling of the aid became so intense that it contributed to resignations. In the transcript of his deposition, 
Sandy said that he voiced concerns within the agency to the Trump appointee he reported to about whether holding the aid was legal. Ultimately, that political appointee, Mike Duffy, the former executive director of the Republican Party of Wisconsin, just decided to take over the process of signing off on the documents that would hold up the money. Sandy told investigators during his deposition that until he took over the appropriation process, Duffy had never voiced any interest in approving apportionments. Sandy said that his own staff was, quote, surprised and concerned about the apportionment authority being taken away from nonpartisan staff. Never in his career, he said, had he seen anything like this. Duffy defied a congressional subpoena and refused to testify as part of the inquiry. Looking ahead to next week, the House Judiciary Committee has scheduled its first public impeachment hearing for next Wednesday. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this hump day. Number one, death rates from suicide, drug overdoses, liver disease, and dozens of other causes have been rising over the past decade, especially for young and middle-aged adults, driving down overall life expectancy in the United States for three consecutive years. A strikingly bleak study was published yesterday that looked at the past six decades of mortality data. The report published in the Journal of the American Medical Association was immediately hailed by outside researchers for its comprehensive treatment of a still enigmatic trend, the reversal of historical patterns in longevity. Why are we moving backwards? Although earlier research emphasized rising mortality among non-Hispanic whites in the U.S., the broad trend detailed in the new study shows that we're making the opposite of headway across gender, racial, and ethnic lines. By age group, the highest jump in death rates over the last decade was actually among those between the ages of 25 to 34. The researchers calculated that there were 33,000 excess deaths between 2010 and 2017. Excess deaths is their calculation for the number of Americans who died above what would be expected if mortality had been unchanged compared to the previous period. About a third of these estimated 33,000 excess deaths of despair occurred in just four states, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Kentucky, and Indiana. The state with the biggest percentage rise in death rates among working-age people over the last decade, 25%, is New Hampshire. Men overall have higher mortality than women. That's always been true. But the report pulls out some disturbing trends. Women are succumbing to diseases once far more common among men, even as men continue to die in greater absolute numbers. The risk of death from drug overdoses increased about 500% for women in midlife between 1999 and 2017. The risk increased about 350% for men in that same period. Women also experienced a bigger relative increase in risk of suicide and alcohol-related liver disease. Increasing midlife mortality began among whites in 2010, Hispanics in 2011, and then African Americans in 2014. Now, the opioid epidemic is a major driver of these worrisome numbers, but it's not the sole cause. This new study out yesterday shows that improvements in life expectancy, largely because of lower rates of infant mortality, began to slow back in the 1980s, long before the opioid epidemic became a national tragedy. 
Something else that's terrible is that these life expectancy numbers continue to improve across the rest of the world as they decline in the U.S. And obesity is a significant part of that story. As a whole, we are collectively fatter than most of the rest of the industrialized world. The average woman in America today weighs as much as the average man did half a century ago. And men now weigh about 30 pounds more than they did. Most people in the U.S. are overweight. An estimated 72% of people over 20 years old. The figure includes 40% who are outright obese. And obesity is also rising among kids. One in five people between the ages of 2 and 18 are now considered technically obese. Number two. The National Rifle Association put out its annual tax form as required by law late last night. The form shows that Wayne LaPierre, who runs the gun lobby, got paid 57% more in 2018 than he did in 2017. His compensation was $2.15 million. The filing also shows perks for him and other top officials that are typically associated with the corporate world, like charter flights and first-class travel with companions, as well as dues for health and social clubs. The NRA filing says housing expenses were even covered for five people. During the same period, NRA spending plunged 22% for education and safety training, 61% for hunter services, and 51% for field services, which includes organizing volunteers, fundraising for shooting sports, and promoting the NRA at gun shows. According to the tax filing, Legal fees have more than tripled in the past year to more than $25 million. The NRA spent more than $25 million on legal fees in 2018. The tax filing for the first time lists the Texas law firm of William Brewer III as one of the most highly compensated contractors. His firm got $13.8 million. Brewer has become one of LaPierre's most trusted advisors despite his lack of experience in Second Amendment litigation. To address concerns about his profligacy, LaPierre invited donors who have given at least a million dollars to the NRA to a meeting at his office in Virginia last month. He disputed reports that he and his wife wanted the NRA to buy them a $6 million mansion in a gated golf community because of security concerns. And he defended the $250,000 in NRA member dues that he spent in recent years to take trips to Budapest, the Bahamas, and other exotic locales. Number three, once again, just in time for Thanksgiving, millions of people are being told their romaine lettuce might be contaminated with a toxic strain of E. coli bacteria, that it's potentially deadly, and that they should throw it away immediately and even sanitize the fresh produce drawer of their refrigerator. No one knows exactly why this is happening. There are inferences, speculation, and intriguing clues, but the best minds of the U.S. government, the lettuce-growing states of California and Arizona, and the leafy greens industry have failed to figure out why romaine keeps getting contaminated or how they can stop it from happening again and again. Last year, the warning from the CDC came on November 20th, two days before Thanksgiving, and it was unusually sweeping, declaring that no romaine in the U.S. could be assumed safe to eat and all of it should be discarded immediately. This year, that warning came on November 22nd, six days before the holiday. The CDC said at the time that 40 people in 16 states have been sickened. 
Last night, the CDC issued an update warning that 67 people have now been sickened with E. coli in 19 states, and they believe it's related to the romaine outbreak. The bulk of the romaine lettuce sold in the U.S. comes from two growing regions, the Salinas Valley of California, which is harvested in late spring, summer, and fall, and the Yuma, Arizona growing region, which actually includes the Imperial and Coachella Valleys of Southern California. They usually harvest in winter and early spring. Contaminated agricultural water is a prime suspect in these outbreaks. Now, the Trump administration has delayed the implementation of new agricultural water testing rules that were developed during the Obama administration and were supposed to have taken effect last year. Those rules would require farmers to test four times per growing season for generic E. coli in agricultural water. Industry groups said the testing requirements were confusing and unwieldy, so Trump appointees decided to delay implementation. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, November 27th. Before I go, a quick programming note. We'll be off Thursday and Friday so that we can celebrate Thanksgiving. Enjoy the turkey and the football, and know that I'm thankful to you for listening, which helps allow me to afford the pecan pie and stuffing that I will eat tomorrow. I'll talk to you on Monday.